Hey there, listeners. Thanks for joining us on Crime Explorer Shack. I'm your host, Sherry Carroll, joined by my co-host, Dawn. I want to remind you that Crime Explorers is created for mature audiences only. Most of our shows include details of true crime cases that some may find a bit disturbing and or offensive. As an extra heads up, most episodes include discussion of depression, psychosis, suicidal thoughts, rape, and or murders, sometimes even of children. We do our best to hold these topics with intention and sincerity and try to deliver the facts of the cases to bring awareness to our listeners. And as always, the accused are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So I feel obligated to put this trigger warning out before we even get started. We hope that you will join us whenever you feel ready and able. So let's get started to go to the Crime Explorer Shack. Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode. I'm Sherry and I'm here with my co-host Dawn. Hi everybody. So uh, this is possibly going to be a two-parter. I will try to cram it into one, but it is so, it is just such an intense case and there are so many factors. This actually may be a two-parter. That's okay. Yeah, it is. It is. I just want to give it its justice. I want to be sure that I cover everything. And there is so many elements to this. And this this case just really, it, it really got to me. I thought I knew some about it until I got into it. Oh, man. So, yeah, I really didn't know. Because um, it happened a month, after, not even a full month after I was born in 73. Oh, okay. I didn't realize, not that you're old, I didn't realize that the case was that old. Yes, it happened um, May the 14th, 1973, and I was born April 20th Mm. of 73. So, uh, before we get started, have a couple of updates. Um, One of the uh, cases that we first covered together, Scott Peterson. Yes. the Scott Peterson appeal page, you know, which is being headed up by Scott's sister-in-law. The judge has actually granted and set a court date of December the 2nd at 10 a.m. to announce her decision as to whether Scott's conviction is going to be overturned based on juror misconduct. There has also been some other elements that have come to light, like the watch that Lacey had. That watch was never found. It was actually reported as stolen. It was never found. It was not on her. Hmm. So there there was a lot of things um, that have come into play and a lot of things that are being questioned as to how this man has been convicted without a accurate timeline and witnesses that saw Lacey that morning, witnesses that saw the burglary across the road, um, statements of other missing pregnant women and things that were not taken into account. So there's a lot of things that are going to be interesting in this particular case over the next couple months. Possibly so, upcoming years. If if it's overturned on December second, is he free? Yes, he will. Um, he will be free for another Whoa. trial. He okay. will be free for okay. for another trial because it, um, it it will not fall under double jeopardy. I don't believe because it was juror misconduct. Well, it wasn't a mistrial. Okay. Well, we'll have to cross that bridge. We'll see what yes. happens. But very interesting. It's, it is truly very interesting. And, and um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are still oh, 100% he did it. But there, I was 100% that he did it until I got to researching. And it's hard for me to believe that all of these factors were not taken into account whenever he was convicted. And how can you convict somebody with no credible timeline murder weapon or crime scene. Yeah, I agree. I was a hundred percent 
um, thinking he was guilty. I think the one thing that really switched my mind was the fact that the police were trying to have the neighbor get hypnotized to change the dates. And um, her testimony, her I, whole testimony, it's just, yeah, that just really bothered me. Uh, yeah. And, and he was crucified in the media and they were basically giving his testimony and his location and everything. So evidence could have been planted. You know? Yeah, it's very interesting. I'll be anxious to, to uh, readdress it later. Exactly. And then I had an email hmm. from, um, and there was no name, but it just said uh, Janine one um, at Gmail and was commenting on the Robert Wagner, uh, Natalie Woods case and said that um, she felt that um, I was a little bit harsh or we were a little bit harsh on the fact that Robert Wagner was guilty and that um, she didn't buy the uh, homosexual allegations. And, you know, again, we were just reporting what mm -hmm. was said in the media Yep, and that she didn't believe that um, he could have done this because he was such a good actor and he was very handsome. Um, ma'am, what ma'am Ted Bundy was handsome too, right? Yeah, handsome has nothing to do with it. Yeah, oh, well, I that was completely speculating and just making up scenarios. I was definitely not going with facts, but yeah, okay, next, yeah. <laughs> you know, Ted Bundy was handsome too, and there are a lot of handsome men. Um, and attractive women who are murderers. Right. It's not uh, It's not exclusive to one sex. No, that has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. And, and he, he was a good actor back in his day. But if he was 100% innocent or had something to prove his innocence, I believe that he would take this opportunity or have taken any opportunity to express his innocence and help the police in proving his innocence. I'm, I'm just going to say that for the Well, record. yeah. And if he is a really good actor, he could have acted his way out of it too. So. Amen. Amen, sister. Amen. So oh I just want to say that for the record. Okay. So Janine, you're entitled. Everybody is entitled to their opinion. So yes, thank, thank you for sharing that, though. I do yes. appreciate it. Yes. Yep, it's good to get uh, input. Anybody else who feels, yeah, you know, feel free to shoot us an email and give us your argument. We will listen. Uh, oh, I sure. appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so we're going to dive into this case. And I, it makes me a little bit emotional at times. So y'all bear with me. This is about the all-day family massacre in Donaldson, Georgia. Like I said, this started or this took place May the 14th in 1973. And if you've listened to Crime Explorer Shack, you know that I live close to Dothan, Alabama. Well, Donaldsonville is 36 miles east of Dothan. Mm. It's in the southwest corner of Georgia, and it's just 20 minutes north of Lake Seminole and approximately 60 miles south of Albany, Georgia. And it was a quaint community named after John Ernest Donaldson, who actually caused an economic boom in the area thanks to his building the first lumber mill in the city of Donaldsonville. Hmm. So in this rural area, agriculture really caused much of the money to, to come about in the community there. Back in 73, it was the home to 13 churches in this city's roughly four square mile land. Wow. And, and its surrounding area. So I'm just trying to set the picture of what Donaldsonville really was like. I mean, it was just a really tight knit family and friends type community. Mm -hmm. It also housed two schools, one that was the elementary school and the other was a middle and high school combined and it also had a public library. 
it was just a quiet, picturesque, farm, working class, down to earth type community. Mm -hmm. So all in all, no one would ever picture that this quiet rural community would ever be wrought by the second worst mass murder documented in Georgia history. Hmm. The first was the Woolfolk murders of 1887, which Thomas Woolfolk killed nine of his family members. Oh and my God. He was later hanged. Wow. So the Alday family, I'll go on later to tell you about them. They just know that they were a, a really tight knit family. They all lived pretty much within the same farm area um, on the same property, worked together farming deacons in the church. Mary was the secretary of the church. They taught Sunday school. Everybody in Donaldsonville knew the all days and talked about them being just pillars of the community. So I will give them their time later on in the story, but I want to go back to how this all started. So as much as I don't like to give the criminals their, you know, time to shine, but I have to start with them to tell the story. So actually this takes place. It starts in Baltimore, Maryland, Poplar Hill Correctional Institute on May the 5th, 1973. What is cause of crime? Cause of Crime is a true crime podcast that focuses on the cause of each crime. We focus on the killers. We focus on the disappearances. We focus on the murderers. We focus on parties that could be responsible. We dive into theories. We dive into different things that could have happened. But we also give our opinions. And we banter. And we talk about it. And we give different points of view because we're different people. Our primary focus at Cause of Crime is to focus on the victims and their stories and keep them alive. Keep their stories going. Keep their memories going. If they're long gone from this world or we just don't even know what happened to them, we want to keep them talked about. And that is our singular goal. My name is Tracy and I'm the primary host and creator of Cause of Crime. I created this podcast for this reason and one reason only, to keep talking about people that need to be talked about to keep doing this and using my voice to make sure I'm making some kind of difference. So if you'd like to join us and dissect each cause of crime with us, you are more than welcome to do so. My co-hosts are Dan and Chris and they alternate each week. You can check us out on all podcasting platforms at 11 a.m. on every Wicked Wednesday and you can join the abnormals. It's fun here. Join us, won't you? So this is where the events of the All Day Family Massacre actually begins. 19-year-old Carl Isaacs was being held there at Poplar Hill Correctional Institute. He was actually born August 9th, 1953, to a father who abandoned him and to a mother that he absolutely despised. Oh. Carl had been a runaway truant most of his life. He had little to no self-confidence, poor self-image, and a major inability to control his anger issues. He was diagnosed with depression. He had a um, particular hostility towards women. He later prostituted himself out to a pedophile in exchange for a room and board. Oh, gosh. And um, I want to go ahead and put it out there that this story talks about rape, violent murders, and it, it does contain some details that some may find troubling. So... If that is offensive to you or troublesome to you, please just bypass this episode because it, it does contain some graphic details. 
Okay, I'll see you later, Sherry. <laughs> Don't it, I know it's 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 troublesome. Oh it gosh. Is. Okay, I'm prepared. So, like I said, he later prostituted himself out to a pedophile in exchange for room and board. One of the times that he ran away from one of his foster homes, and when he ran away from juvenile facilities that he was in. By 1970, Carl Isaacs was 16, and he was regularly stealing cars, burglarizing homes, and it was this very same year that he was arrested for the first time. A second arrest for car theft and breaking and entering into Maryland soon followed, and this led him into the Maryland Correction Camp, and um, he was sent to the minimum security Poplar Hill Correctional Institute. He was just extremely troubled from an early age. According to Thomas H. Cook's book of the all day mass uh, family massacre, Blood Echoes, Carl's father, George Archie Isaacs, left Mountain City, Tennessee, where he'd worked as a delivery man and as a service station attendant before he made his way up north. Once he was in Maryland, he had kind of taken on little odd and ends jobs to make ends meet. And to hear him tell it, Betty, who was Carl's mother, was, quote, his undoing. Hmm. She was already married to a man named Carl Coleman. And Carl Coleman was the father of four of her children at that time. But this little fact did not stop George and Betty from going on with their illicit affair. But when Coleman found out about this affair, he went and signed a warrant against George that charged him with breaking peace between Betty and himself. Hmm. So once arrested, George Isaacs served 40 days in jail which blows my mind. I didn't know you could be arrested for basically having an affair when two parties are consenting adults, but I guess you could back in the 60s. Yeah. And, 70s. and I've never even heard of those charges before breaking Me peace. Either. That's interesting. Breaking peace. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when he was released, he went back to Betty, but suspiciously Coleman had disappeared into the wilds of West Virginia. So rumors began to spread that he'd been shot, though George would later, you know, deny it. And um, George went on years later to describe Betty as a faithless wife who, quote, did nothing but sit around and drink. <laughs> and he had fathered so many children with her during these next few years that later on, when Carl Jr. had gotten in trouble. He couldn't even remember the names nor the exact number of his offspring when he was questioned by the defense team psychologist. Wow. And he told the psychologist, quote, this is a quote from the psychologist, quote, I'm just trying to remember which one that was. Oh, quote. gosh. You know, and Carl Jr. was the one who would later bring the the dark blemish to the Isaacs name, which by no means was George Isaacs, you know, a perfect role model for anyone. Right, right. Because George had George had, had enough of the family life and he had had enough of Betty turning all those kids against him. So he up and abandoned them. And he later on referred to him leaving the family and abandoning the kids is quote the dirty thing that's what how he referred to mm. <laughs> so I, I just i don't know with his mom betty either being drunk or shack carl and his siblings were left to defend for themselves oh boy so they roamed the streets carl jr and had been caught still in his elementary school and as well as in a local department store he was placed on with his and Hazel, his older sister. And this placement seemed successful for a little while, but in 19th, Carl was caught 
about stealing first from the construction his foster father worked at. And a psychologist declared the thievery and bad behavior and his consistent girl's background. So in turn, he advised the foster family against any form of therapy. Hmm. Which that's terrible. I, I don't know. So his failing four subjects in school. In 1967, he was 14. He resented attending school. He resented what he referred to as, quote, the straight life structure. He harbored growing contempt for authority, which led to heated arguments with his foster family. May 22nd, he ran away from his foster home. He wandered the streets and was picked up two days later and placed in the Maryland training school for boys. Two subsequent psychologists uh, found him suffering from depression, a poor self-image, and pronounced inability to handle his increasingly angry and tumultuous feelings. And again, he got moved to another foster home. He began acting out. Oh my God. He was moved to another boy's home. And then he was placed in a third foster home. He began acting out. He ran away, picked up, turned to the Maryland training boys. At that time, it was reported by a staff member there that Carl could not respond to female authority. And he would not accept discipline from women. And this hmm. attitude was only exacerbated, which... During a prearranged Betty Isaacs, his mother, she was unable to recognize him and had to be told by a staff member that he was her son. Oh, my gosh. That's so tragic. So Carl continued to escape and get sent back. During one of his escapes, an investigation into his whereabouts revealed that he had moved in with Charlie Bowman. And Charlie Bowman was an employee of the Burns Detective Agency. And it turns out that Bowman was a homosexual who had a taste for children. Mm. And Carl was one of several boys who lived with Bowman, providing sex in exchange for room and board. Oh my gosh. So when interviewed, Carl asked to be placed officially and permanently in Bowman's foster care. The state was unable to find much of an alternative due to Carl's rocky and aggressive behavior and, and all of his past runaways. So a social worker declared Carl to be ungovernable and sent him back to Maryland's training school for boys, August the 11th, 1969. He began another series of escapes, and they formally declared that it had exhausted its resource for Carl and removed him from the juvenile system. And this set Carl Jr. Isaacs loose into the world. So at this point in time, Carl begins his spree of crimes. He's stealing cars, burglarizing homes, burglarizing businesses, living basically a semi-nomadic existence. In March 27, 1973, he was sentenced to Maryland State Penitentiary for car theft and B&E. And what? I'm sorry, Don. Oh, he got a, he got sent to jail for what? Car theft and what? Uh, B&E, which is breaking and entering. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Breaking and entering. Yep. So two days later, a riot broke out out in the prison and Carl, small in uh, bodybuild stature, um, he was young and he was new in prison raped by fellow inmates from 6 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. Oh Eight and one half excruciating hours by numerous inmates. While the riot happened all around him, violence, rage, and when it was, was given another psycholo psychological evaluation, and he was removed from the Maryland State Penitentiary. And on April the 25th, he was transferred to a minimal, which was Poplar Hill. 
And he vowed he would not stay there long. Mm. Because see, his half-brother, Coleman, and all these Carls, I mean, did Betty not have any? Yeah, really. <laughs> well, when you have that many kids, you probably run out of names. I know. Everybody's got Carl. Yes. Half-brother, Wayne Carl Coleman, had been transferred to Poplar Hill a few months before. Isaacs Jr. found Wayne Carl Coleman. And I'm going to, from here on, just say Carl Isaacs and his brother is Wayne. Okay. So, so Wayne in the prison, he began to enlist him in an escape plan. Compared to Carl, kind of timid and sluggish, he didn't have um, a direction or a focus really, but Wayne saw that Carl did. And he turned to, Wayne seemed to turn to others for leadership and guidance. And in Wayne's eyes, Carl was bold. Um, he saw, and um, he was resourceful and strong in, in Wayne's eyes. So Wayne was very eager to please Carl, but he had one stipulation to go through with the escape plan. He wanted to bring a fellow inmate with him. This George Elder Dungey, D-U-N-G-E. So Dungey was a black man who was described by many at this time as innocuous and dim-witted. He was 36 years old. He wore thick, dark rim glasses, and he was being held at Poplar Hill on contempt of court for non-payment of child support. But oh, while geez. there, he developed a homosexual relationship with Wayne. The crazy thing here is Dungey was just a few weeks away from being released from prison, but he still went along with his plan. Oh my gosh. So for Carl Isaac's part, he had nothing but contempt for Dungey because he was a black man. And it was black men who had raped Carl mm. during the prison riot. So this was a hard pill for him to swallow. But he went along with it because he really wanted Wayne and he, he, he needed people to help him escape. So at 3 a.m. in the morning of May 5th, 1973, the trio of the Isaac, Coleman and Dungey. They climbed through a bathroom window and hid in the surrounding woods. And after several hours, they made their way into Baltimore where they stole a blue Thunderbird with the same ease of which they had just left Poplar Hill. But here's the part that just really grips me. The authorities there at Poplar Hill had become aware that the three of them had just escaped, but as nothing in their criminal history indicated grave public danger, they did not alert authorities wow. that the capture of these escapees was of vital importance. Oh my gosh. If they are in prison, it's important if they escape. So they didn't let anybody know that they had escapees from this prison. Wow. So nobody knew. The public didn't know. And, and to, in, in their defense, in their defense, I mean, there had not been any violence in their history. But they're escapees on the loose, so don't you think they might tend to be a little bit violent to protect their freedom at this point in time? Right. Just desperate. Exactly. De desperation will cause you to do a lot of things. Right. So Isaacs, Coleman, and Dungey remained in Baltimore for two days following their escape um, and just aimlessly enjoying their newfound freedom before Carl Isaacs decided he wanted to pick up his 15-year-old brother, Billy. So Billy was living in Towson, the Towson area of Baltimore County with a female friend, but didn't hesitate to pop on in and join Carl as he, he really just looked up to Carl and uh, Wayne. So now the four of them spent the next week just kind of driving around Maryland and into Pennsylvania committing a multitude of home break-ins. And they got some cash and some guns and different clothing items. And the plan, according to Carl, was to head south to either Florida or go to Mexico and live the good life. 
Mm-hmm. get some drugs and be drinking and just commit crime for the rest of their lives. <laughs> so on Thursday, May the 10th, 1973, they were near McConnellsburg, Pennsylvania, still in a pickup truck. And 19-year-old Richard Wayne Miller, who was an upstanding young man, he was the he was a member of the Future Farmers of America. He spotted his neighbor's truck being stolen. So he gave chase in his 1968 green Chevy Supersport, and he then disappeared. Oh, no. So by Monday, May the 14th, 1973, the four of them, now in Richard Miller's car, arrive in Donaldsonville. And that's in Seminole County, Georgia. So here we are to the day in Donaldsonville. It was a it was a really pretty day in South Georgia. The temperatures were around 73 degrees, and it was actually seven degrees below the norm at this time of year. It was partly cloudy first thing that morning. Most of the clouds had burned off by 9 a.m., just slightly overcast, and the all-day family had started their routine. They just really had no idea what was about to transpire. Mm. Um, to the the whole county, not just Donaldsville, Seminole County residents. The Alday family was just the epitome of Southern virtues. Ned and Ernestine Alday had eloped in 1935 and eventually become parents to nine children. Wow. Yeah. And they had scrimped and saved until they could afford a small house in Donaldsonville before they saved enough to purchase the farm of their dreams and have a large farmhouse on River Road. By 1973, the All Days River Road property was a a working farm. It had animals and crops and Ned and Ernestine lived in the big farmhouse with their youngest children, Faye and Jimmy. Their son, Jerry, had married Mary Campbell in 1970, and they moved into a trailer just a few miles down River Road from the farmhouse. They had a son named Chester, who everybody knew knew as (laughs) Shuggy. Yep. As Shuggy lived with his wife, Barbara, whom he had married in 1969 in a trailer that was parked only a few yards from the big farmhouse. So the all days were considered hard workers who put back-breaking, exhausting work into their farm, and they were also considered religious churchgoers. There had never been a police or a court officer to enter the all-day home in an official capacity. No all day had ever disturbed the peace, been on welfare, or any type of blot to the community in any way. Ernestine all day spent the morning of May the 14th, as she usually did. She was cooking lunch and doing her household chores. She always cooked lunch so that everybody could come in from the field and sit down at the family table, and they would all eat together. I mean, just, you know, southern... Yeah, just wholesome Southern tradition. And at noon, the all-day men arrived for lunch, bowed their heads for the traditional blessing, and then talked about the farm as they ate. Ned and Jerry were plowing a field, although it was at a slower pace than usual due to muddy patches from the recent rains. Jimmy had planned to finish plowing a flat field he had started and then plow the fields behind Jerry's trailer at lunch or after lunch, while Shuggy would go join his Uncle Aubrey on equipment borrowed from a neighbor to work um, a field up at the west part of the uh, property. Well, their meal finished by one o'clock and they all went their ways, leaving Miss Ernestine to clean up. At roughly the same time, the Isaac brothers and Coleman and Dungy were arriving into Seminole County after going so far as Jacksonville, Florida, turning around and heading back north again. Mm. I mean, these guys were just doing, they were doing the most. So Carl Isaacs had noticed in rural Seminole County on the way to Florida 
and he felt that the area with its remote location and a really tiny police department would be the perfect spot for the the criminal activity he had he had in mind but despite the burglaries they were out of money and they knew that they would soon be running out of gas so mm. they hoped that they would find some gas to siphon out and fill up the car or both and it was around 4 p.m when he spotted yeah, yeah go ahead are the police looking for them at this point no okay no nope nope no bolo has been put out nothing okay okay it's it's insane mm -mm. crazy yeah okay <laughs> it makes you sick doesn't it well yeah just you know they're just going about living their lives and and then you hear these bad guys are in town it just you know what's coming it's just so sad and scary and makes your stomach hurt and somebody when i posted the promo that i was going to be talking about this show because i've had a lot of people ask me to do this to do this this episode mm -hmm. and when I posted the promo, somebody here, because this is less than an hour away from my house. Right. And somebody said, this is when we started locking our doors in Dothan. Oh, that's sad. And, and, you know, that's the type of environment we had here. And, you know, everybody just kind of felt safe until this point in time. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Yeah. So it was about 4 p.m. when Carl Isaac spotted a tank, like uh, the tanks that they used to, it's a gas tank basically, to fill up tractors. But he spotted it sitting along in the field about 50 feet from the road. The tank, however, <laughs> proved to be diesel. <laughs> so they agreed to continue on. 15 minutes later, they appeared to find the perfect mark on river road and it was the trailer belonging to jerry and mary all day mm. and it had a gas pump on the property carl isaacs and wayne coleman began ransacking the trailer while george dungey and billy isaacs waited in the car they saw two men in a blue jeep approaching and billy warned his brother carl jerry all day and his father ned pulled up uh, pulled in behind the trailer in Jerry's Jeep. They were completely unaware that the home was being burglarized. Mm. They typically would return to Jerry's home after a day of hard work to meet with the other men and plan what was going to happen next day in the farming while Mary would be out working in her flower garden in the front yard. But instead, they were met by Carl, who at gunpoint ordered them inside to sit at the kitchen table. And he told them to empty their pockets. From the father and the son, the four men scored a pen knife, a cigarette lighter, a wallet, some change. 35-year-old Jerry was taken to the south bedroom of the trailer. And 66-year-old Ned was taken to the north bedroom. Carl then shot and killed Jerry. And he had to assist Coleman in killing Ned as after having been shot once in the head, Ned rose from the bed and he tried to fight them. Mm. And he had, it had to require multiple bullets from both Isaac's and Coleman's gun to restrain and permanently silence him. I'm sure because he knew what was coming. He knew that they were going to continue on with the whole family. Yes. Yes. The later autopsy showed that Mr. Ned had been shot six times with two different pistols, a 22 caliber and a 32 caliber. And Jerry had been shot four times with a 22 caliber pistol. Mm. So shortly thereafter, Jimmy all day, the son of Ned and brother of Jerry drove up on a green John Deere tractor and he walked right up to the back door of the mobile home and knocked politely. He was greeted by a pistol held by Coleman who robbed him of a hat, a pair of sunglasses and a nearly empty wallet. 
Carl confronted Jimmy, accusing him of coming to the trailer because he had heard the gunshots, to which Jimmy truthfully denied, but likely realized at the same moment that someone, probably his brother, had been shot. Carl took him to the living room where Jerry was forced to lie on the sofa, and then Carl shot the 25-year-old twice in the back of the head. Jeez. His autopsy later revealed that Jimmy had been shot with a 22 caliber pistol. And after murdering Jimmy, Carl went outside to move the tractor, which had been parked in front of their car. At that time, Jerry's wife, Mary, drove up in her car to the now crowded driveway. Oh, seeing, seeing her, Carl jumped off the tractor. And he came up behind the unsuspecting Mary, who had pulled a paper bag of groceries from her car. He pulled a pistol on her and told her to get in the trailer. And his first act to demean her was to knock the bag of groceries out of her hand. And as had been done to her husband and father-in-law and her brother-in-law, she was robbed of her possessions that she had, including a Timex watch, and then Carl dumped her handbag out and it contained her car keys, perfume, her wallet, and it had $1 inside. Mm -hmm. And he dumped all of that out in front of her. And that was when two more men in a pickup truck pulled up. And that was Shuggy and Aubrey all day. And that's the son of Ned mm -hmm. and the brother of Ned all day. They were laughing, and they made no effort to get out of their vehicle, so Carl decided to go and get them. Taking his brother Billy with him, the two each took a truck door and ordered the men out and to get into the trailer at gunpoint. With Carl accusing the men of laughing at him, Shuggy and Aubrey spotted Mary crying uncontrollably as they were ordered to sit on the floor. Wayne Coleman collected towels from the kitchen table and headed to the north bedroom while Carl and George Dungy took Mary to the bathroom, where Dungy was put in charge of guarding Mary. Shuggy, who had turned 30 years old exactly one week earlier, was taken by Coleman to the bloody north bedroom where his father lay dead. Oh, my gosh. He was shot. And then Aubrey, who was 57 years old, was taken by Carl to the south bedroom where Jerry's body laid, and he was killed there. Their autopsies revealed that Aubrey had been shot once with a 38 caliber pistol, and Shuggy had been shot once with a 380 caliber. When he was found, when he was found, Aubrey's fingers lay folded over Jerry's as if. In the last moments of his life, he reached out to hold his nephew's hand. Oh, my gosh. And Mary was taken from the bathroom into her kitchen table where she was raped first by Carl and then by Coleman. The prison escapees plus Billy Isaacs and a blindfolded, gagged, and terrified Mary Alday then drove to a heavily wooded area several miles away where Mary was dragged out of the car by her hair and raped twice more by Carl and then once by George Dungy. Mm. Photographs were then taken of her with an instamatic camera stolen from the trailer. One photo was later found of a frightened and nude Mary only moments prior to her death. Wow. Before Dungy made her lie on her stomach and he shot Mary, 25 years old, once in the back and once near the back of her head. Her autopsy would reveal that not only had she been repeatedly raped, but she had been shot with a 22 caliber pistol. Mm. So at this point in time, the four men abandoned Richard Miller's car, which was nearly out of gas, in, in the woods, close to where they left Mary's body, and they took her car, which was a blue and white Chevy Impala, 
and they later abandoned it in Alabama. Wow. Family began to wonder why they're not coming home later on, you know? Right, yeah. Um, some of the neighbors see these guys drive by. So they saw Richard Miller's car drive by, Carl Isaacs driving it, and Mary's car behind it. Mm -hmm. And then they see it come back. And it turns out that um, I believe it was Dungy had forgotten um, his wallet or something in the prison, uh, in the trailer. He had forgotten some kind of thing that would link to him in mm -hmm. the um, trailer. So they went back and got it. So, I mean, not only did they just leave from there and yeah. get out, but they took the time to go back. So it is crazy to me. So the murders shocked and terrified this close-knit community of Donaldsonville. It the community closer together. The all-day neighbors stopped by the farmhouse on River Road to bring them food. Tried to give small to, to help with whatever they could. In Colquitt, Georgia, which was the hometown of Campbell all day, and it was just 18 miles away from uh, where the crime um, they had their own, you know, they were agonizing too. The terrifying details, this, the details of this tragedy were actually kept from her mother because she was also a diabetic. Miss Campbell was only told that Mary had been shot and died instantly from her wound. And a neighbor unintentionally revealed to Miss Campbell all the facts about Mary's last moments, including oh, that she was and that she had witnessed the murders herself. Oh my God. And then she let it slip that she had been found nude. So it was really too much for Miss Campbell, and she sank into a diabetic coma shortly after learning these details, and she died. Of Hours oh later. wow! So many of the—that's crazy. Many of the say that her her death made her the seventh victim in all of this, and they they say that the the Isaacs should have just they they technically could have just put a gun to her head as well. The victims um, mm. on. May the 17th, social and commercial activities became a came to a halt in Donaldsonville and Seminole County as the um, began. The mayor had called for a day of mourning and the community responded by closing all the stores downtown. The streets were deserted. And by the time the funeral services began for Ned, Aubrey, Shuggy, Jerry, Mary and Jimmy, nearly all the townspeople joined together and they create Baptist Church. And this is the church that Ned actually helped to build. And the all day men and Mary had been officers and teachers in its Sunday school. And it's where Shuggy and Barbara and Jerry and Mary had all married. And wow. it was just the church itself was not even equipped to handle six full-size coffins and the expected large number of attendants. So the decision was made to have the services on the cemetery grounds to accommodate it, um, all who wanted to attend. And there were so many floral arrangements that were delivered that flowers were stacked on flowers around the coffins and the graves. And I'll post a picture um, on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and TikTok so people can see yeah. this. Various state dignitaries attended. Carter's mother, he was the governor at that time. It's, it's crazy because later he was president, but Governor Jimmy right. Carter, Lillian, or Miss Lillian as she was affectionately known, and his special uh, assistant. And eulogies were given for the victims, and Ned was remembered for being lively and for his sense of humor. And Aubrey, who left behind a wife and six children, was remembered for his skills as a farmer. 
and his love of hunting and fishing. Shuggy was remembered for his strength and his comedic nature. Jer, uh, Jerry remembered for his quiet dignity. And Mary was remembered for her work in social service and her devotion as a wife. Jerry was remembered for his youthful energy, his pranks, and his love of looking at facts in the family encyclopedias. And all of them were praised for their hard work and their service to church and community. So I'm going to stop here for episode one. Oh, we'll go okay. with episode two next week because I know we've got a lot to go on because now you're going to find out how they end up catching them because they really have no idea who would have wanted to do this. They still had no idea who came into the house, who killed them. The police are trying to figure out who would want to harm them. Wow. And it's just unreal. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. But I wanted to at least, I wanted to end on uh, episode one on giving everyone an idea of who the all days were. Right. We started with how the, the Isaacs came evil. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then how good the, the all days were. And right. their tragedy, Miss Miss Ernestine, Ned's wife, her tragedy didn't end when they passed away. This continues on. It's it's just tragic. It, mm. it doesn't end. It continues on. So wow. episode two will begin next Thursday. And you are a, uh, if you follow Crime Explorers, you can actually subscribe on uh, YouTube. I'm not YouTube. <laughs> Let me change that. You can actually subscribe. <laughs> and if you subscribe, you'll be able to go ahead and listen to it. So if you follow oh, okay. Apple, Apple or Spotify, you'll be able to go ahead and listen to it. So I will have it all uploaded, but it will be, if you want to follow it and subscribe, you can go ahead and catch it when this one drops. So stay tuned for us next week for part two of the All Day Massacre. Bye, guys.